Today's scripture is from 1 Peter, chapter 5, 6-14. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard in him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. Let's open with a word of prayer here before we dive into First Peter. Father, we thank you again for the privilege of gathering together today as a church. Just praying as always that you would help us to stay focused on what your word has to teach, particularly today on a day that's maybe a little bit warmer than normal. We pray that our hearts would be focused on what you have to teach. We pray that our minds would be set on the hope that is found in the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that our desire for you would increase as we go here. Lord, we know that we are prone to distraction. We know that we're prone to wander. We know that we're ponder, we are prone to leave the God we love. And so we pray that you would take our hearts and seal them. That you would seal them for like courts above, Lord. That you would enable us to be able to focus on what you have to teach us here in this last section of the book of First Peter. God, we are confident that you speak because this is your word. And so we're confident that you'll speak this morning. We just pray that we would have ears to hear. And so Lord, help us this morning. Help us to be ready to hear. Help us to be ready to listen to what you have to say. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So for 14 weeks now, we've been studying the book of 1 Peter. And, and no doubt, there are some hard parts of the book of 1 Peter. There are some strange parts in the book of 1 Peter. But for the most part, I hope that you've been encouraged. hope that you've been challenged. hope that you've been comforted. I hope that you've been convicted by the book of 1 Peter. But that now that we're towards the end, I guess my question for you this morning would be this. If you were to summarize the book of 1 Peter, what would you say? We've been in it for 14 weeks now. Perhaps some of you would answer that question by saying, I didn't even know we were in the book of 1 Peter. And maybe you would say that because you are a visitor today, and I would say, welcome. Or maybe you're saying that because you've been checking out all summer, and I would say, welcome back. Or maybe you're saying that because the shift to the morning service was a little rougher for you than you were hoping. And you've been sleeping for the last 14 weeks, 14 weeks in which I would say, good morning. Okay? But wherever you are in that spectrum, I hope that for the vast majority of you, those are not the things that describe you. I hope that for the last 14 weeks you have been locked in and you have been listening to the book of First Peter. And assuming that's the norm, and I hope it is, my question for you would simply be, how would you summarize this book? What would you say? If someone were to say to you, what's the summary of the book of First Peter, how would you respond? Now maybe you would respond with something simple. Maybe you'd say, as Christians, we will suffer. Or maybe you would actually look for a, a verse in the book of First Peter and you'd go to something like First Peter 4.19. Uh, a verse that we talked about a couple weeks ago, which simply says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Or maybe you'd be a little bit more creative. Maybe you'd quote the modern philosopher Taylor Swift, and you say, Haters gonna hate, hate, hate. You just gotta shake it off. 
Right? Maybe that's what you'd do. But wherever you'd go, and by the way, I think all of those could actually be a summary of the book of First Peter. Wherever you would go, I would say this. We don't have to worry too much about the summary because I think this last passage in the book of First Peter actually summarizes the book for us. And so it's convenient here that as we get to the end of First Peter, the last passage actually summarizes for us what we've been talking about for 14 weeks. And so let's read again, because I think what we'll discover here is that a lot of the major themes in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11 in particular are the same themes that we've been talking about now for nearly three months. So let's read here again, 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 6. Verse 6 says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, for the most part, we're going to focus in on verses 6 to 11 today, although I will mention verses 12 to 14 briefly at the end. And as I said, I think the great thing about verses 6 through 11 is that the major themes we see in that particular passage are also the major themes of the book of 1 Peter. And there's three things that we see over and over here in verses 6 through 11. One is the reality we face. Secondly, the hope we have. And lastly, the response that we should have to the hope that we have. So let's start by just talking about the reality that we face. As Christians, we must deal with this reality. If we are going to live for Jesus Christ, if we are going to be active in pursuing Jesus Christ, we will face opposition. It's just all there is to it. And that opposition will come in the form of suffering sometimes. In fact, Peter has been relentless on this very theme throughout the book of 1 Peter. He has said over and over and over and over again that if you are a Christian, you will suffer because of your faith. And he does it again here at the very end. Now, I actually think that most of 6 through 11 is actually implying that there will be suffering, but explicitly he mentions twice that if we are pursuing Christ, there will be suffering. In fact, he mentions it in verses 9 and 10, twice. Look again here, verse 9, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So not surprisingly, because Peter's been doing this throughout the book, he reminds us, if you are a Christian, you may well suffer for your faith. In fact, you should expect that. And what he does in verses 9 and 10 is he gives us two important reminders about our suffering. He reminds us, first of all, that the suffering we face is not unique. It's not unique. In verse 9 he says that our brotherhood around the world is facing the same kind of suffering. Now, one of the things that we said is unique about the book of 1 Peter, not unique, but one of the things that Peter's emphasized or that we've said over and over that he's saying to the readers is that suffering is not just being beaten or thrown in jail or being killed because of your faith. It's also being insulted 
It's being mocked. It's being marginalized. It's being socially ostracized because of your faith. And what Peter is saying is that, although, yes, it's true that our brotherhood around the world is likely facing suffering in the form of imprisonment, beatings, death, it's also true that our brotherhood around the world is facing insults, mocking, marginalization, ostracism. And the reality is that while we may not be facing beatings or imprisonment or death yet in this country, maybe someday that will come, we are facing mocking. We are facing insults. We are being marginalized. And what Peter's doing here is encouraging us. He's saying, you are not alone. Your brothers and sisters around the world, those who hold to a common faith in Christ, they too are experiencing the same kind of suffering. And that's encouraging for us because it reminds us this is not unique. It's not unique if you suffer because of your faith in Christ. It's also encouraging to us because knowing that other people are going through suffering and they are persevering, this is an encouragement. Let me give you an example that's not related to the type of suffering in First Peter, but I think describes the principle that I'm getting at here. A few weeks ago now, Noah and I ran a 5K. My son Noah, who's eight years old, we ran a 5K, which is three, 3.1 miles, I believe, on the 4th of July. And I have to say this, my son Noah, he is a gifted long-distance runner. I don't know where he got it from. It's actually bizarre how fast he can run over long periods. And so what happened in this particular 5K is that because I'm older and, and I'm, uh, at least for the first part of the race, I'm faster, the first half of the race was great for me, okay? So I'm turning, and as we're running, like, I'm encouraging Noah, like, come on, keep up, like, you can do it, like, keep going. The second half of the race was not so great for me. I was starting to hurt. This is where Noah's superhuman eight-year-old long-distance running kicks in, and he's going at this superhuman pace that I, I can't imagine an eight-year-old can do, and in the meantime, I'm just suffering, Right? Like, this is miserable. I'm doing everything I can to keep up. And I'm wanting to slow down. And I'm wanting to stop. And I'm wanting to walk because I am in pain. And yet the thing I kept thinking is, if Noah can do it and he's only eight, I have to do it. Because I told myself, listen, if he beats me now when he's eight, I have no chance when he's nine or ten or eleven or twelve. Right? I've got to keep up with him. And so I kept thinking to myself, if Noah can do this, if he is eight years old, I know I can do this too. And so even though I was suffering, even though it was miserable, I kept saying, let's keep going. In fact, we got to the very end of the race, and there's this gigantic hill. And I'm like, Noah, do you want to stop? And he's like, no. I'm like, Noah, do you want to stop? Like, I just want to keep checking in, right? Because I am in pain at this point. But the fact that he kept saying no, and he kept going, this is what spurred me on. I thought to myself, if he can make it, and he's eight years old, and his legs are so much shorter than mine, surely I can make it too. I think the same principle applies. Clearly, we're not talking about the same suffering in the book of 1 Peter. But knowing that other people are persevering, knowing that there are other Christians around the world that are hurting, knowing that there are other Christians around the world who in some cases are being killed because of their faith and they are persevering, this encourages us to keep going. There may come times when we face suffering, and if I see that you're suffering well, if I see that you're persevering, if I see that you are staying the course, this will encourage me to do the same. In fact, as I think about our brothers and sisters around the world, our brothers and sisters in Egypt or Libya or Afghanistan or in many other places around the world, and I think about their perseverance, I think if they can do it, surely I can do it too. And so one of the encouragements that Peter is giving us here is that we are not alone in our suffering. If other people can make it, so can you. The same spirit that lives in them, the same spirit that enables the Christians to stand there while they're being beheaded because of their Christian faith resides in you if you are a follower of Christ. And so if they can do it, so can we. That's what Peter's doing. He's encouraging us here. He's saying, listen, your suffering is not unique. 
there are other brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing the same thing. Now he gives another encouragement. He says that our suffering will only last for a little while. Look at verse 10. This is what again he says in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while. And then he goes on to say all the things that God has done. But he says, after you have suffered a little while. Christians, understand this. Your suffering on this earth will only last for a little while. Now let's be clear. When Peter says that, he's not suggesting that your suffering will only last for a few minutes. Or that it will only last for a few hours or for a few days or for a few weeks or for a few months or even for a few years. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that in the grand scope of eternity, in the big picture, your suffering will not last. It will be very short. In fact, this is a principle that is beautifully illustrated for us in the book of 2 Corinthians. You can turn there. It's about five or six books to your left here in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 16 to 18. There's a huge principle here that our suffering will not last forever. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. says this, So we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Verse 17, I think, is the key. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Understand this, our life on earth is but a breath. Now, I know there are sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Especially if you have young kids, in the last two hours leading up to bedtime, that can feel like an eternity sometimes. I understand that sometimes it feels like time goes by incredibly slowly. But most of the time, we all know that time flies by. That's why on birthdays, we say things like, I can't believe I just turned 30, or I can't believe I just turned 40, or I can't believe I just turned 50. It always surprises us because time goes so fast. It's why we're always surprised at how fast our kids grow up. I remember when Noah was born, everyone told us they'll grow up so fast. And I thought, I don't know if that's true. But the longer we go, the more I realize that's exactly true. Noah's almost nine. That means half of our time with him, if he goes off to college at 18, half of our time with him is over. And I can't believe it because time goes fast. I think we all know this. We all know this, that time goes fast, that our life on earth is but a breath that it will be over before we know it, and then eternity will be here. And the encouragement that Peter is giving is no matter how much you suffer for your Christian faith, and let's be clear here, we're talking to Christians. We're talking to those who've repented of their sins and trusted Christ. If you are suffering because of your Christian faith, know this, your suffering is limited. It will not last forever. In fact, in the grand scheme of eternity, it will only be for a little while. This is the encouragement Peter gives us. It won't last forever. It won't last forever. And so persevere. Hang in there. Hang in there because we know that our brotherhood around the world is suffering in the same way. Hang in there because we know that our suffering will not last forever. But know that there will be suffering. I don't know how else you could read the, first of the book of 1 Peter and not come to that conclusion. Because over and over, this is what he says, if you are a Christian, you will suffer because of your faith. Now one of the reasons we will suffer is because we have an enemy who's opposing us. That's one of the things that Peter hasn't talked about a ton in this book, but I think it's been implied in many ways throughout the book that we have an adversary who is seeking to destroy us. And here, at the end of 1 Peter, he explicitly says it. 
Look at verse 8. Look at what he says here. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We have an adversary. We have a spiritual foe. We have Satan that we are against. C.S. Lewis once said this about the nature of spiritual warfare. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both heirs. And they hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. I think C.S. Lewis is right that there are two heirs we can fall in when it comes to Satan and his demons. One is to simply dismiss that they exist. And oftentimes in our postmodern, post-enlightenment world, this is the approach that people take. Even Christians, we don't really think about the existence of Satan. We dismiss that he is actually there and he's seeking to devour us. The other mistake, though, is that we can become excessively focused on him. But given the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, given the victory of Jesus over Satan, we don't have to be afraid of Satan or we don't have to be excessively concerned about him. But we do need to be aware that he is prowling around like a lion seeking to devour us. The book of Ephesians says that our battle is not primarily against flesh and blood, but against the spiritualities and principalities of the dark world. It's against the dark kingdom. It's against Satan. Listen, Satan is very much real. And he will do everything he can to keep you from believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Satan is very much real and he will do everything he can to keep you from believing the promises of God. He is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour and to gulp down his next enemy. In the same way that a lion seeks to devour and gulp down his prey. This is what Satan is doing. And this is the reality that we face. Listen, as Christians, we just need to be honest. If we're going to pursue Christ, we will face the opposition of Satan and we will face suffering. And I think we need to acknowledge that. In fact, I think we do a real disservice to those who are Christians when we fail to acknowledge the difficulty of following Jesus. Especially, I think, when it comes to our young people who grow up in the church, we need to acknowledge more that if you are going to follow Jesus, it will be difficult. I think one of the mistakes we make is that we don't talk about this enough. And what happens is with our kids who grew up in the church, we tell them all about Jesus dying on the cross for sin. We tell them that if they believe in Jesus, they can have eternal life. And we explain to them the gospel, that God is holy and that we are sinners and that one day we will be judged because of our sin. But God sent his son Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins and rose three days later, that if we would repent and trust, we can be saved. We explain that message to our young people. And all of that is good and true and right. And we should explain those things. But we often don't continue to tell the story. And we don't remind our young people that if you follow Jesus, there is a cost to be paid. That there will be suffering. That there will be an enemy who's out to get you. And what happens is our young people go off to high school or they go off to college and they start facing the mocking of their peers. Or they run into a professor who throws them under the bus or throws their faith under the bus and they don't know what to do with it because it's unexpected to them. They're caught off guard. We need to remind our young people that yes, following Jesus is difficult. But we also need to remind them that he's worth it. Yes, there'll be suffering. Yes, there's an enemy, but Jesus is worth it. And come to think of it, we don't, need to just need, we don't need to just remind our young people of that, do we? We need to remind each other of that. 
If you are a follower of Christ, you need to be reminded today that following Jesus will not be easy. Oh, it won't be. There will be suffering. There will be difficulty. There will be opposition. There will be persecution. There will be the attacks of Satan. But Jesus is worth it. We need to remind each other of that. We need to remind each other that Christ is better than all of these things. That it is better to pursue Christ than to have all of the treasures of this world. Because one day we will be with him forever. In fact, we need to remind each other of the hope that we have. That yes, there is suffering. Yes, there is opposition. But we have hope. And in fact, that's one of the things that Peter has done throughout this book. And it's one of the things that he does in this last passage. Yes, he reminds us of the reality we face. But he also reminds us of the hope that we have. And simply put, our hope is in God. Our hope is in God. Our hope is in the character of God. Our hope is in the fact that God is powerful. Our hope is in the fact that God cares for us. Our hope is in the fact that he is sovereign. Our hope is in the fact that he sent his son. And in fact, throughout the rest of this passage, verses 6 to 11, this is what Peter does over and over. He reminds us of who God is. In verse 6, he tells us that God has a mighty hand. In verse 7, he tells us that God cares. In verses 10 and 11, he reminds us that we will spend eternity because of the work of Christ with him. In verse 10, Peter is emphatic that God will get us there. In fact, look at the language he uses in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. The emphasis is entirely on God and his character. The reason you have hope in the midst of suffering is because of who God is. It's because of the fact that through Christ you have eternal glory. It's because of the fact that God will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and confirm you. And the reason he can do this is because all power belongs to him. Look at verse 11. This is exactly what he's saying. To him be the dominion or the power forever and ever. Amen. And so if you put all this together in verses 6 through 11, this is what we're reminded. God is powerful and he cares. And you can entrust yourself to him. Listen, we may face powerful enemies on this earth. We may face people who are politically well-connected and who have all kinds of earthly power, but their power is nothing compared to the power of God. You may face the prince of darkness who is powerful, but his power is nothing compared to the power of God. And not only is God powerful, but he cares for you. He cares for you. He sent his son to die for you. As we've said before, it's one thing to say that we have a powerful ally. It's another to say that we have a powerful ally who cares. God is both. He cares for you and he is powerful. The hope we have is based on who God is. Because of that, we have hope that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. We have hope that although others may seek to kill our bodies, that he will protect us spiritually. We have hope that although Satan's rage may endure. Doom is sure. The hope we have is that we have a faithful God who can be trusted. And we know that we can trust him primarily because he sent his son to die for us. And again, we can't emphasize this enough. Peter has said over and over, and he has pointed over and over in this book to the fact that Jesus died on the cross for sin. This is the hope we have as Christians. That God loved us enough, he's powerful enough to do something, and he cared about us enough to send his son to die for us. 
And this is what he's been reminding us of over and over throughout the book of 1 Peter. Understand, that's intentional. It's intentional because it's the only hope we have. The only hope any person in this room has that they will ever spend eternity with God is because of what Jesus did on the cross. The motivation you have to live a different life is because of what Jesus did on the cross. The reason why you get up in the morning and you keep persevering even if there's suffering is because Jesus died on the cross. And so yes, there's a reality that we face, but there's also a hope we have. And that hope is found primarily in that Jesus died on the cross for sin. And in light of that hope, we live differently. And that's the last thing we see in this passage, that there is a difference in the way that we live. And it starts in verse 6. This is what Peter says how we should live. Verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So one of the responses we have to this hope we have in Christ is that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. To humble yourself under the mighty hand of God means that you entrust your life to him. That you believe that he's got things under control. This mighty hand language is the same language that is used in the Old Testament to describe God delivering the Israelites from Egypt. I'm sure you're familiar with the story the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. And with his mighty hand, God sends the plagues on Egypt. And with his mighty hand, God parts the Red Sea. The reason why Peter is using this language here is to remind us that the same God who sent the plagues on Egypt, the same God who parted the Red Sea, the same God who delivered the Israelites, he will deliver you spiritually as well. And the implication is that you can trust him, that you can humble yourself under his mighty hand, that you can believe he knows what is best. I mentioned the book of Job briefly a couple weeks ago, but I think, I think it's fitting that we talk about it again this week. I was struck as I, I read the book of Job in my own uh, devotional life this week, how appropriate that book is for what we're talking about here. Let me just give you a brief recap for those who maybe aren't super familiar with the story of Job. In Job chapter 1, God's talking about Job, how he's a man who's worthy and blameless, a man who follows God. And Satan says, well, uh, there's an interaction between Satan and God in in chapter 1 of Job. And Satan says, well, if we take from him the things that matter, he won't pursue you. And so God gives Satan permission and Satan goes and, and he takes away Job's family and Job's livelihood and Job's money. And yet Job still worships God. And so Satan goes back to God and he says, well, if you take Job's health, he won't worship you. And so Satan gets permission from God and Satan takes Job's health. And yet Job still worships God. Then for the next 35 chapters of the book of Job, there's this ongoing dialogue about why Job is suffering. And it goes on and on. And if you've read the book of Job, you know it literally goes on and on and on. For 35 chapters, there's this dialogue back and forth. Why is this happening? And Job's friends are saying, well, it's because of this. And Job's saying it's because of this. And finally, in Job chapter 38, God starts speaking. And what he says is not what you would expect. Because what you'd expect, given what we know that's going on behind the scenes, is that God would offer up some explanation to Job. But that's not what he does. Instead, what God says, essentially, is, do you know who I am, Job? Were you there? This is the first question he starts there. Were you there when I formed the world? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? And then he goes on from there and asks all these questions to point out that Job really knows nothing in comparison to God. But what you need to understand today is that all those questions he asked of Job, he might as well have asked of us too. 
Because what he's doing with Job is putting him in his place and he's reminding him, I am God and you are not. And the same is true for us, that we were not there when the foundations of the earth were laid. In that song we said, we said, who can hold the ocean in the hollow of his hand? Right? Well, the answer is no one except for God. Right? There is no one like him. That's the stark reminder in the book of Job. It's a stark reminder throughout all of the Bible that there is no one like God. That he alone has a mighty hand. That he alone can save. That he alone is sovereign over all things. That he alone is powerful over everything else. That he alone will be worshipped. That he alone will have every knee bow down before him. And therefore, he can be trusted. This is why we submit to him. This is why we humble ourselves under his mighty hand. And we say, yes, we don't understand what is going on, but we trust you. We trust you. To humble yourselves under his mighty hand means that you submit to his plan. Now listen, some of you today may be going through things that you have no idea why it's happening. And you can't figure out why you're going through suffering after suffering. And the only encouragement I can give to you is humble yourself under his mighty hand. Listen, I don't know why you're going through what you're going through, but what I do know is that God does know and that he is good and that he cares. In fact, that ties into the very next thing we see in this passage, that we should not be anxious because he cares. Instead, we should submit to him in prayer. Verse 7. Verse 7 says this very thing. It says, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, I think it's fair to say that in Westchester County, there are probably some people who are anxious sometimes. In fact, I think it's probably fair to say that there are some people who are in this room right now who are feeling some anxiety. I mean, think of all the things that there are to be anxious about. First of all, you have to have a job. If you're, as an adult, you have to have a job, right? And you have to figure out a way to keep your job. And then you have to figure out a way to get to your job, which means driving in the crazy traffic here or taking the public transit and squeezing into the subway or whatever the case may be. And then once you've kept your job, you've got to pay the bills. And if you're married, you've got to maintain that relationship. And if you have kids, you've got to look out for them. You've got to shuttle them from place to place to place. And they've got to be involved in activities. If you're single, you've got to figure out how do I make the best use of my time. And then you're maybe trying to figure out, is this a relationship that I pursue? And so if you're an adult, there's all these things that can make you anxious. And if you are young, there might be even more things to make you anxious. If you are in middle school or high school, you have to worry about getting good grades so you can get into a good college, so you can get a good job, so you can make good money. And on top of that, you have to fit in socially, right? You have to look a certain way and act a certain way and do a certain thing. There are lots of things for us to be anxious about. In fact, even as I'm talking about them, maybe some of you are getting anxious right now, right? There's so many things to be anxious about. But what we need to understand is that anxiety, and this is key, Anxiety is a form of pride. There's a reason why verse 6 says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And verse 7 says, cast all your anxieties on him. The two are tied together. Because anxiety is ultimately a form of pride. And the reason why I say it's a form of pride, and the reason why Peter, I think, is saying it's a form of pride, is because anxiety is ultimately thinking that we have more control than we actually do. Think about the reason you get anxious is because it feels like certain things are out of your control. And it feels like you've lost control on certain things or you can't get control on certain things. But the reality is you never had control to start with. You may, you may have had the illusion of control, but you were never in control. You never were. Who is it that provides your job? 
Who is it that gives you money? Who is it that enables you to travel safely? Who is it that provides you with a spouse? Who is it that keeps your kids safe? You may be under the impression it is you. It is not. Ultimately, it is God who provides all of those things. Now, that's not to downplay your effort or your hard work or the role you play in any of those things. But it is to say those things are ultimately from God. Because even your ability to work hard because you have health, that's from God. Or to have energy so that you can work, that too is from God. The gifts that you have that enable you to succeed at work or to be a good parent or to be a good spouse, those too are from God. Everything we have is from Him. Anxiety is pride because it's us thinking we're in control of things when in reality we are not. The alternative to anxiety is to cast or to throw all of your anxiety onto Him. That's humility. It's recognizing that you are not in control and saying, you know what? I'm going to cast these anxieties on you, God, because I know you care. That's what humility looks like. Now, again, I'm not minimizing the role of hard work or the role of doing everything you can, effort to accomplish things. I think the Bible assumes you will do those things. In fact, the book of Proverbs assumes that the wise person will be hardworking and industrious and resourceful. But ultimately, everything we have comes from God. And so to be filled with anxiety is not a personality issue. Sometimes we speak of it that way. We say, well, I'm just an anxious person. But to be filled with anxiety is ultimately a trusting of God issue. It's a trusting of God issue. Now, the problem with anxiety is that anxiety is oftentimes one of those sins that we wear on our sleeve as a badge of courage. When people ask us, how are you doing? We say things like, well, I'm stressed, or I'm anxious, or... I'm feeling nervous about this. And listen, that's okay. It's okay to admit that we're struggling with sin. It's okay to admit that we're going through a tough time. It's okay to say, this is hard for me. But let's just acknowledge that anxiety ultimately is pride. And that underneath our anxiety are sinful roots of thinking that we are in control. And so it's okay for us to admit, I'm feeling anxious. But let's also acknowledge when we say that, that there are sinful roots in that statement that we are thinking we are in control when in reality we are not. Because if the alternative to anxiety is to cast your cares on God, if the alternative is to cast your cares on God, to have anxiety means that you're not casting your cares on God. So we need to cast our anxiety on Him. To not do so means that we're trying to do everything ourselves. Now, I joked last week when we were talking about elders that Che never gets stressed about anything. And that's not entirely true. I know he gets stressed about some things. But the reason why Che is probably the least stressed person I've ever met is because of his view of God. I'm convinced of that. It's not because Che has this dynamic personality that alone, he alone is to be credited for it. No, it's because of his view of God. It's because of his view of who God is and how God is in control. uh, Che has one of the most healthy views of God I know also. It's not a coincidence that those two things run hand in hand that to have a healthy view of God will lead to less anxiety. And so the opposite is true. If you have anxiety, it's probably helpful to go back to the root and ask yourself, how am I thinking wrongly about God? What wrong picture do I have of God? Because if I have a right picture of God, it will lead to less anxiety. Listen, if he cared enough to send his son, he will care enough to take care of whatever it is that you're worried about. Peter understood that there would be stressful situations in life. That's why for the first, for all five chapters of the book of 1 Peter, he's reminded us over and over there will be stressful 
serious uh, suffering that we face. He understood that there would be stress. But he also understood that we can cast our stress and burdens on him. And so let me ask you this today. What is it that you are anxious about? What is it that you're trying not to think about today? What is it that you're trying to avoid thinking about this week because it distresses you out? Instead of being stressed, let me encourage you, cast, throw those anxieties on him. Let him take care of it because he cares for you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and cast those anxieties on him. Whatever it is that you're stressed about. And I'm not trying to be a simplistic, everything's going to be easy type person. Remember, I started this sermon by saying there's a reality we face that there will be suffering. So I'm not being simplistic and saying, oh, just cast all your anxiety on him and everything will be easy. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is you can trust him. So cast your anxiety on him. Cast your anxiety on him. Now there's one last thing that Peter says here. And that's simply this, that we are to resist the devil. Again, this is somewhat new in the book of 1 Peter, but this is something I think he's been implying throughout. There's a spiritual battle. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, how do we resist the devil? I think the key is actually found in the the second phrase there in verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith. We resist the devil by being sober-minded, by being alert, but ultimately by being firm in our faith. In other words, by knowing who God is and what Jesus has done, this is what enables us to stand against the schemes of the devil. Think of the famous spiritual warfare passage in Ephesians 6. And think about all the armor that we are told to put on. We're told to put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes fitted with the readiness of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word. Almost all of those are connected to who God is and what Jesus has done. This is the way we battle back against Satan. It's by remembering who God is. It's remembering what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Listen, the devil is not unbeatable. That's why Peter says that we can resist him. And the reason we know he's not unbeatable is because of the fact that he's already been defeated by Jesus on the cross. And this is where we look for hope. As we see the victory of Jesus Christ, we are reminded that we too can fight back against Satan. Yes, the message of the cross is the hope for salvation, but it's also the reminder to us as believers that we have victory over the dark one, that we can defeat sin, that we can defeat Satan, that we can defeat the world. As Christians, I think we need to be honest about the reality we face. We have an adversary, the devil, who's out to devour us. We have suffering that will be a regular part of our life. I think we also need to remember the hope that we have. We have a God who is powerful. We have a God who cares. We have a God who we can trust. And we have a God who's defeated Satan. And so we don't need to be afraid of Satan. We don't need to be afraid of circumstances. We don't need to be afraid of suffering. Instead, we just need to stand firm in our faith. We need to cast all of our anxiety on him. And we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And in many ways, I think you could say that that serves as a great summary 
of the book of First Peter. Now, that's not to say there aren't other summaries. In fact, I think if you define Taylor Swift's song in a certain way, you could say that actually is a summary. If by haters going to hate, what we mean is that there will be opposition to the gospel. And if by shake it off, we mean entrust yourself to a faithful God, I could even go with that as a summary of the book of First Peter. But I probably prefer the language of First Peter. And in fact, there's a little phrase in verse 12 that I think is the best, succinct summary of the book. Verse 12 says this, By Sylvanus, a faithful brothers I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. It's that last phrase of verse 12. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. I think this is a summary of the book of First Peter. That we stand firm in the grace of God. Because it's his grace that enables us to endure suffering. It's his grace that gives us the hope of eternal life. It's his grace that gives us the hope that we can persevere. It's his grace that we stand in. Yes, suffering will come for those who follow Christ. But we stand in the grace knowing that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. And so in that way, it's probably more appropriate that as we leave today, the song that's in our heads is not shake it off, but instead amazing grace. Because it's in that grace that we stand no matter what may come our way. And there may be a lot coming our way. There may be a lot of suffering. There may be a lot of opposition from Satan. But one thing we know for sure is that God is powerful and he cares about us. And we know that he cares because he sent his son. And it's in that grace that we stand. We can do no other. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have this true grace to stand in. And we pray that we would do exactly that. We pray that we would stand here today in your grace. And that we would believe that you are powerful. And that we would recognize that you care. And that we would look to the cross. And from the cross we would have this hope that enables us to endure whatever suffering, whatever opposition from Satan may come our way. God, please, please, Help us to stand firm in your grace. Help us to believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true and help us to live accordingly. We know that there's a reality we face, but we also know there's a hope we have. And we want to live appropriately in light of that hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.